This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now. Amen. He is so good. Open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, and you have got a place for notes on the back of your song sheet. If you want to kind of follow along uh, that way, the, the outline is, is there. No, no slides today, and so be, be ready. We're going to have Bible, Bible sword drills this morning. You can be turning, turning in your Bibles this morning. No, no slides. So uh, nothing wrong with that either. So um, we're talking about new people in a new world today. Isaiah 65 is stunningly beautiful. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful vision at, at, at the end of what is to, to come, and oh, I love it. I can't, can't wait, <laughs> can't wait for us to walk, walk, through, walk through this chapter today. New people, new world. So we're going to look at parts of, of Isaiah 65 today. Let's look beginning at verses 1 and 2. God says, I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. Let's go down to verse 8. The Lord says this, As the new wine is found in a bunch of grapes, and one says, don't destroy it, for there's some good in it, so I will act because of my servants and not destroy them all. Let's go down to verses 17 and following. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days. Or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. And the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf 
and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. Father, we thank you for this incredible vision of things to come. And we pray that you would make us faithful in the meantime to live as new people now who are destined for the new world that is to come. Speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer describes the kind of the anxiety that he felt about getting ready to write a book about God. <laughs> and he said, I kind, of, I kind of felt like someone who was approaching a, a, a huge mountain and, and, and going around the base of the mountain and looking up at the mountain from different angles and, and trying to figure out how to go about this. And before we started through Isaiah, I, I kind of felt like that. You know, it's 66 chapters, and I, I knew how important that, that it is. I mean, Jesus is constantly quoting from Isaiah. Paul's constantly quoting from Isaiah. And I, I found myself over the past few years just drawn to Isaiah and reading it over and over and over. But as far as preaching through it, I kind of wonder, like, how, how do I do this? What's the path? But eventually, kind of felt like the Lord was given the path <laughs> to start the journey up. And it's been a blessing to take that, that journey with you. And so what we're going to do today and next Sunday as we look at chapters 65 and 66 is what we're going to see is that in these two chapters, a lot of the themes that we've looked at throughout our walk through Isaiah really come together. All these different threads are kind of coming together in these last two chapters. Because the, the, the way that these chapters kind of are themed really is sort of like the whole, the whole book. So let's look at chapter 60, 65 today. What do, we, what do we see here? Well, the first theme that we see, again, is a theme that we've seen throughout the whole book, and that is a rebellious people. A rebellious people. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. God says, I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good following their own thoughts. Now, the theme of people in rebellion against God goes all the way back to the very beginning of the book. Turn back to chapter 1, chapter 1 of Isaiah. What, what did we see there at the very, very beginning of this book in chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3? We see the theme of a rebellious people. 
Isaiah 1, 2, and 3. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, God is like this incredibly loving father, the good, good father that we just sung about, who has poured into his people and loved his people faithfully, loved his children like, a, like a, an incredibly loving father who just loves his kids endlessly and has poured himself into them only to have his kids turn their backs on him and pretend as if he doesn't even exist. It sounds a lot like a parable that Jesus told, right? The the parable where the, the, the younger son, there's a father a loving father who, who loves his two sons, who's poured into them. But the younger son says to his, his loving father, he says, give me my share of the inheritance now, which in the ancient world was the same as saying, I wish you were dead. But the father gives it to him and he goes out and he blows that. But that, that story is really about two prodigal sons. <laughs> because the older brother who remained in, in the father's house was far from the father. <laughs> in fact, the heart of the older brother in the story is, is even harder than the younger brother who, who comes home. And, and, and Israel was like the older brother in that story. They, they were in the house, but they were far from the father. They were still going through the motions of worship and ritual, religion, all of that. But yet they were deeply, deeply in rebellion against the God that they claimed to worship. Let's look at at chapter 65 again. God says at the end of verse 1, I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. In other words, God had been giving them chance after chance, trying to get their attention Here I am, here I am, only to be spurned. Ray Ortland says this is hardly a dignified picture of God. Here I am, here I am. He's trying to get the attention of self-important little people who order their lives as one massive snub of him. Imagine the founder and owner of a Fortune 500 company and this guy from the, from the very beginning, from the very founding of this company has built 
a culture where it's a joy to, it's a joy to work there. I mean, from the very beginning, th- this, this guy decided, I, I want this to be a, the kind of a place and the kind of culture where, where, where people will, will love to work he, he has, through the years, from the very beginning, he's, he has leaned incredibly forward. Great salaries and, and benefits and just created just a great environment for people to work. And one day, he decides to visit the headquarters of the company. And so, he approaches the, he approaches the, the high-rise building only to be treated rudely and hassled by security before he ever gets in. And then he walks through the, the beautiful atrium, and there are, his employees are just kind of streaming by, and they don't even make eye contact with him, let alone speak. It's like he's not even there. And then he walks up to the elevator, where a group of his employees are clustered together inside the elevator, and they just let the door just shut right in his face. And he's just standing there. Here I am. He finally makes his way up to a meeting room where a group of junior executives are meeting, and he's told by a secretary, sorry, you can't go in there. These guys are, these guys are making decisions. You have to stay out here. This is kind of like this, this is with God. You, you would think that at this point, God would just clean house. I'm done with you people. I'm over you. But instead, God does something even more radically loving. Instead of being done with these people, he comes to these people. And he doesn't just come to these people. Philippians 2 says that he takes the form of a servant. So what do we see in Isaiah? God becomes a suffering servant on behalf of his people. He comes to them. Turn to chapter 53. What did we see there in chapter 53? Let's pick it up in in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. People thought that Jesus was suffering because of His sins. But it wasn't for his sins. Verse 5, he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. But remember, as this was happening, most people did not understand who Jesus was. John 1.11 says he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. 
But who did receive him? When you read the four gospels, who do you see flocking to Jesus? It's not the insiders, it's the outsiders. It's the outcasts. It's people like prostitutes and tax collectors. It's outsiders. It's people like Gentiles. They're the ones flocking to Jesus. And in the early church, Paul was experiencing the same thing. Who was embracing the gospel for the most part? It was not his fellow Jews. who had all of the advantages of the Old Testament and the law and the prophets and all of that. It was pagan Gentiles who didn't have any of that. And so Paul's trying to make sense of that. How do I make sense of this? What does he do? He goes to Isaiah 65. And so in in Romans 10, 20 and 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I reveal myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. And here Paul finds his answer. (laughs) Israel's problem was not a lack of preparation or information. The problem was defiance. The problem was rebellion. And it's the same with us today as American believers who have all the advantages. Churches all over the place, surrounded by Christians, the, the gospel in, in, in the air, it's all, all around us. Most of us have a dozen Bibles on our shelves. But are we reading them? And are we obeying them? Well, we see something here about a rebellious people. Second, we see something about a remnant people. A remnant people. Let's look at verse 8. The Lord says this, as the new wine is found in a bunch of grapes, and one says, don't destroy it, for there's some good in it, so I will act because of my servants and not destroy them all. There used to be a grapevine, wonderful grapevine, in the neighborhood I grew up in, and we ride our motorcycles on a trail back towards this, this house, and, and uh, we had permission to get grapes there. And there, it was just this beautiful trellis. And uh, in September, you know, the grapes would just be hanging down in clusters. They were Concord grapes, just hanging in these wonderful clusters. And just, you know, when you, when you picked a cluster of grapes, in every cluster just about, you know, most of them were just beautiful and, and wonderful, but, but a lot of times there'd be one or two grapes that would be shriveled up in the good, amidst the good cluster. Well, like, this is the opposite. This is like a cluster of grapes that is mainly shriveled up. Most of them are shriveled up, but in the midst of that, there are, there's a remnant of, 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 of good grapes. And God says, I'm not going to throw away the good with the bad. 
Now think of the context here of Isaiah because Isaiah knows that a lot of the people who were going to read this prophecy in the future would be people in exile. He knows that exiles in Babylon are going to read this prophecy. And he knows that a lot of the people that are, that are going to be reading this prophecy were people who were born in Babylon. <laughs> they were essentially there because of the disobedience of previous generations, because of the sins of their parents or their grandparents. But here they are in exile, and they're trying to live for God. You know, sin has a fallout. And you may have even experienced that in your own life. And maybe you, you grew up in a situation where there was a lot of dysfunction that was caused by sin that, that you didn't commit. It was, it was sins of your parents or previous generation, but yet you were, deal, you're, you're, you were dealing and you're still dealing with, with the fallout from that. There's collateral damage of that. And that was the situation with a lot of these exiles who would be reading this prophecy, but yet they're trying to live faithfully for God, and God is encouraging this remnant, this faithful remnant, and he's saying to them, look, God is not going to hold you accountable for the sins of your parents or previous generations. He's not going to toss you aside. In fact, he's got his hand on you, and he is going to renew you. He's going to restore you. You're going to rebuild. He's going to take you back to your homeland. And he's going to be with you every step of the way as you go. And he is going to take you and make new wine from your life. And friend, I would say that to you. That kind of no matter the situation that's going on around you, you walk faithfully with the Lord and, and he will take your life and do something beautiful and make new wine from your life. Look at, let's look back at chapter 43 of Isaiah. What do we see there? Chapter 43, we see God's faithfulness to this remnant. Let's look at 43 and, and verses 18 and 19. Remember this, so beautiful. God says, do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to things of old. Look, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Amen. The third thing that we see in chapter 65 is a new world. <laughs> a new world. This is where the book has been heading. This is where the world is heading. Look at verse 17. God says, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. This is where this book has been headed all along, and this is where the world is headed. And this is your future as a believer. When Jesus comes again, believers are going to be raised with glorified bodies. 
If you've passed away on that day, you're going to be raised with a glorified body. If you're still alive on that day, your body is, is instantly going to be transformed into a glorified body. As death is destroyed. Let's look back at chapter 26. Chapter 26 and verse 19. What do we see there? Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew. Those who have, have, have died in Christ are, are, going to be, are going to be raised. Their bodies will rise and, and you will be covered with the morning dew. What is morning? It's the beginning of a new day. A new day in a new world. What's it going to be like? We don't have words to describe it. We can't even imagine or fathom how wonderful it's going to be, but we get some images here in this chapter. Look at the latter part of verse 17. God says the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Cancer? What's that? Terrorism? Never heard of it. Sin? Death? The wounds that you carry around that you can't seem to ever completely shake? Or those bad memories that wake you up in the middle of the night you can't ever seem to forget? They will all be gone. All gone. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Verses 18 and 19. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Now, as we've seen before in Isaiah, a lot of times prophecy operates on two levels. So a lot of times there's a, there's a more immediate fulfillment, and then there's uh, an ultimate fulfillment. We saw this in chapter 7 when there's a prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ, which is the ultimate fulfillment, but then there was a more near-term fulfillment that was closer to Isaiah's day. And that, we see that a lot of times in prophecy. We see that in the Davidic covenant, for instance. In, in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that he's going to have a son to sit on his throne. And of course, the more immediate fulfillment of that is Solomon, but then there's language in chapter, in, in 2 Samuel 7, that clearly goes beyond Solomon. Because God says that one of your descendants is going to be a forever king on a forever throne. That's not Solomon, that's Jesus. So a lot of times in prophecies, there's a, a couple of levels going on and a more near-term fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment. When you look at verses 18 and 19, he's talking about Jerusalem and restoration and things like that. So that was going to happen. 
right? They were going to be able to, to return under Cyrus, and you know, there, was going, they were, there was going to be a, 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 a restoration, a rebuilding under Nehemiah, and somewhat of a, of a revival under Ezra, and, and things like that. that. That was going to happen, right? But, but, but the language here in verses 18 and 19 clearly goes beyond that. It goes beyond anything that would happen in earthly Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that is going to come down from heaven. And that's not just going to be a city in the Middle East, but it's going to be the whole earth. A a new heaven and earth where the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard. This is what John is talking about in Revelation 21. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 there. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Now, what we see in verses 20 through 25 are a series of metaphors that contrast life as it is now in this fallen world with with, with life as it will be in the new world. I I believe the language here in verses 20 through 25 is, is metaphorical. Isaiah is a master of using metaphors. And we see that many times in Scripture. see it in Psalms sometimes. Psalms 22.6, where David says, I am a worm and not a man. That's a metaphor. Isaiah, uh, David's not saying there, I'm a squiggly little thing that crawls on the ground. <laughs> he's saying, when he says I'm a worm and not a man, he's saying, I am humiliated. I don't even feel human at this point. And what we see here in verses 20 through 25 is, is a, a series of, of beautiful metaphors that are contrasting the things about this life that can be so sad and so hard with, with what will be in the new world that is coming, where as Tolkien said, everything sad comes untrue. Let's look at verse 20. In her, right, so he's been speaking here of the the, the new Jerusalem. He just said, 
of the new Jerusalem, the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. And then he says in verse 20, in her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses 100 years will be considered cursed. Now, a lot of ink (laughs) has been spilled by scholars about verse 20. We won't wade into all the details today, but Bible-believing scholars have different takes on this verse. There are some, including some who I would really respect and hold in very high regard, who would say that uh, Isaiah can't be talking about the new heaven and earth here in verse 20 um, because there's death. And in one sense, that's absolutely right. There will be no death in the new heaven and earth, right? No doubt about that. And so some scholars would, would say that, well, here, he's, because you see the presence of death, he's talking about uh, a, a millennial kingdom where, uh, the, after Jesus comes, where there is, is, is still death. And again, and there are scholars I greatly respect who, who, would, who would hold that, that view. Others, in, including myself, this would be my leaning, is that this is talking about the new heaven and earth. I think it fits the context better. Because in verse 17, as he introduces this section, he says he's talking about the new heaven and earth. And then at the end of verse 19, which feeds right into verse 20, he says the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard, which means there's no death. We need to understand when it comes to eschatology, there are things that we should be very dogmatic about, and then there are things we should hold more loosely. What we should be very dogmatic and clear about is the fact that Jesus is coming again, literally, bodily, and in victory. And that believers are going to be raised with glorified bodies, and there's going to be a new heaven and earth forever, right? Um, That much is like super clear. All Bible-believing Christians, you know, have to be united in that. When it comes to other stuff, we need to stay humble. (laughs) We need to be very humble because we, we, we don't know. But my my, my leaning here would, would be that Isaiah is speaking metaphorically in verse 20. I, I, I do not think this is a literal reference to, to, to death. I think he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And what he's doing here is he's using a metaphor to, to describe how one of the things in this life, the thing that makes us the most sad, which is death, is destroyed. And it's destroyed all the way through, from infancy to old age, over the whole of life. Death is destroyed. And the thing that makes us the most sad is untimely death. He talks about the death of infants here. I know as a a pastor, and this has happened several times, times over the course of my ministry, seeing a young couple who, who loses a, a child at a, at, a, at, a, at a young age, and, and an infant or a toddler, and, and walking a couple who should be holding a baby in their arms, 
but their arms are empty. And instead, there's a tiny casket that's being lowered into the ground. That's as hard as life can get. Untimely death, or the the death of of a young person. In my first church, a young mother was brutally murdered. And I'll never forget the night being there with her little children as they were told about the death of their mom. Or about the young man in, in my second church, who a young father who was, was, was on a job site and was crushed between two pieces of, of, of heavy machinery and, and, and lingered for, for, for days in ICU before dying. And the way that the grief just tore apart that family, untimely death. And what verse 20 is saying is that that is a thing of the past. Untimely death, death period, will be destroyed over the whole of life from infancy to old age. Death is utterly destroyed. Let's look back at chapter 25. Chapter 25 and look at verses 7 and 8. What do we see there? Isaiah 25 and verses 7 and 8. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. And you remember when we looked at chapter 25, we talked about the fact that that Paul and 1 Corinthians 15 is drawing language directly from Isaiah 25 when he's talking about the return of Christ. And he says what? Death is swallowed up in victory. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success. So so work is a big part of our lives here. Whether we work outside the home or inside the home or whatever our our vocation is, we, we spend a lot of our lives working. And as Christians, our our work should be fulfilling. Scripture says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we can find great fulfillment in our work. But a lot of times our work is hard. Because we'll work on projects and everything. And we'll think we've got every, every, uh, every I dotted and every T crossed and all that. But things just fall apart. (laughs) There's frustration. Right? And, you know, and so a a lot of times work here is hard. Okay, that's because we're living in a Genesis 3 world. There's thorns and thistles. In the new world, no more thorns and thistles. 
There will be meaningful work, but everything, everything works right, right? Everything is productive and, and fruitful and together and like as it should be. No more thorns and thistles in our, in our work. What does, he, what does he say here at, at, uh, at the middle part of verse 23? He says, going back to the beginning, they will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. In this world, loving parents pour into their kids. They pour everything into them they, they love them endlessly and raise them up, but sometimes tragedy intervenes. There's untimely death like we talked about. It, it could be that we, we love kids and we raise them up and we pour into them, but they make poor choices and, and bring pain into their lives or stuff just happens to them. In either case, it's tragic. But that's old world stuff. In the new world, no tragedy. No tragedy. You will not bear children destined for disaster. Look at verse 24. God says, even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Now in this world... God answers prayer. He's always with us. We have access to him as believers 24-7. And so God answers prayer here and now. He is with us here and now. But in the new heavens and earth, he will be with us and it will be different. Paul captures this in, in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that now we see through a mirror dimly but then, face to face. John says this in Revelation 21. Remember, he says that God will be with them. He will dwell with them, right? Faith has become sight. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. You see, in a Genesis 3 world like the one that we're living in, the fallenness of this world extends even to nature. And, and that's, what's, that's what verse 25 is about. It's not just saying that, you know, vicious animals will be together. Right? It's, it's a metaphor for saying that all of nature is going to be right. We live in a world where there's a fallenness even in the natural realm. Not just that they're vicious animals that attack one another and attack human beings, but there are tornadoes, there are hurricanes, there are tsunamis. There are earthquakes. But in the new heaven and earth, the entire creation, not just the people within the creation, but the entire creation itself is made right. 
Paul says this in Romans 8, 21, when he says the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. And at the center of all of this is Christ. At the center of this renewed world, this new world, this new heaven and earth, at the center of all of it is Christ. In Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, which we'll be at in a few weeks, Ephesians is next. In Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, Paul says there that, that, that God's plan has been that everything, everything is going to be brought together in Christ. King Jesus will be reigning at the center of this. Now, Christian, this is your destiny. This is your destiny. If you are not yet a Christian, it can be your destiny. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Turn from trying to do life on your own apart from God, your way, and turn to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you and trust him. Trust in his finished work, his death for your sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and receive him. Welcome him into your life as Savior and Lord and King. If he's your Savior and Lord and King now, then he will be forever. You were made for the world that we're talking about. Which is why there's always going to be a level of dissatisfaction in this world. That's why. It's why life is going to be like we, we, we're grasping after things that we, can't, we, we never quite reach. There's always going to be a level of dissatisfaction here because ultimately we were made for another world. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is why we're never quite satisfied here, nor should we be. There's a yearning for a, a, a world where things are right. There's a, there's a yearning for a world without sin and death. You know why you yearn for that world? Because that's the kind of world that God created at the beginning. And he's going to recreate when Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the incredible good news of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the glory of our future in Christ. We pray that we would be filled with that hope, that the, the things of this life and the problems of this life and things, that we would have a perspective on that. Because those things are not going to last. And we're going to have forever with you in a whole new world. Father, I pray for anyone today who's, who is discouraged 
and, and hurting and carrying a, a burden or a problem that they're just having, they just can't sort through. Lord, I, I pray that, that, that today would just be a, a time uh, where, where by your grace you help them just put, put that in proper perspective. Lord, for anyone here who came into this room or began to watch this video not knowing Christ, Lord, we pray for your spirit to, to work and move and grant faith and new life, new beginning. Lord, we pray that, that we would be a people that are filled with joy from this hope and a people that goes forth and who shares it with people that need to know you. Turn our eyes toward you, we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.